You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want to inspire you to be in your own financial front seat by knowing what you own, what you owe, how to reach your goals, and by having an annual checkup. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. So we have talked before with all of you about the multi-billion dollar co-working industry. You've heard Kelly and I talk about our office at WeWork. When Kelly gets in here later, we will ask her about the day she had yesterday because we just moved to new WeWork space that has outdoor space. And we had this insanely warm day in New York. So Kelly spent a February day working outside. I was in Houston where it was really cold, but never mind. But a new and interesting trend is the rise of co-working spaces for women only. I don't know if you read the New York Times story about Quilt. I certainly did. Kelly certainly did. Quilt is a women-only co-working space in people's homes. It's a brand new model, really interesting. So we invited the founders, Gianna Wurzel and Ashley Sumner, to join us here in the studio, which they're doing on the eve of their launch in New York, which is really exciting. Welcome, both of you. Thank you so much for having us. Sure. So Ashley, let me start with you. You're not new to New York, but the business is new to New York. So tell us a little bit about Quilt. Great. Yeah. So I'm I'm not new here. I, I went to college here and spent a, a decade. And it's interesting because as we built out this concept, which is very much centered around empowering women to open up their homes, you know, inviting other women in around co-working, around making connections, around learning from one another, really shared knowledge. And when we launched this, uh, we kind of blindly stated we, we didn't think it would be for New York for a while. You know, it's... Um, not hard to connect here, and the, the homes tend to be 300-square-foot studio apartment walk-up floors, or at least that's what mine was when I left. Um, and then this New York Times article came out, and, you know, we do have a, a bit of a community here, and the women have just been writing in and kind of begging for us to bring it here. So that's, you know, we've always wanted to go intuitively where we were drawn towards as opposed to just, you know, blindly picking where we think. Um, And we've been called here. So we have been in stealth mode. We've been testing for six to eight weeks. And tonight marks the official launch out of one of our fantastic women homes uh, in Soho. Exciting. Exciting. But you started in L.A., We did. And Gianna, how does it exactly work? That's a great question. (laughs) Well, it's very different. mm, It is. So right now, uh, there is a website, essentially, that a woman goes on to, and she can apply to become a host. And what that means is that she can apply to open up her home to 8 to 12 other women for a facilitated conversation around a particular theme that we choose each month. So we create the discussion guides. We train our hosts to... Uh, facilitate those conversation amongst these women, and they gather anywhere from 7 to 10 a.m. in the morning or 5 to 8 p.m. in the evening. And so that's essentially how Quilt functions now. The co-working, what you alluded to beforehand, was really 
something that we launched with and something that still exists within our community, but something that happens amongst our members. So we do have a private Facebook group for all of our members in New York, San Francisco, and L.A., and that's something that the members just offer to one another. So a woman can say, hey, ladies, I'm going to be opening my home on Friday morning from 9 to 12 p.m., DM me or comment below if you wanna if you wanna come by and co-work with me working silently side by side so that you don't have to do it alone. Which is important. I've said yeah. before on the show that when I left my last major magazine job mm-hmm. and started working more as a freelancer, my my problem was not getting work. My problem was that I was lonely. Mm-hmm. And I would schedule lunches or I'd schedule a run so that I could see another human being at some point during the day. But what I really wanted was parallel play. I still wanted to do my work. And you guys are essentially facilitating that. Yeah. And I think the thing that's really fascinating for us is just coming up with a with an alternative solution. So uh, something like WeWork or The Wing or Noya House, which Ashley uh, was there for quite a few years building that community. Those are really wonderful options. But for us, it was more so what does it look like for a woman to create a co-working or a decentralized model? And instead of us taking ownership over the space, and it's something that we want to exist everywhere and not necessarily just for the top 1%. How do we do that? And we kind of went, well, wait a second. I was creating community and co-working spaces out of homes, but there was only a singular space and there's only so many people that we can reach. And Ashley was coming from a a traditional background at at really luxurious co-working spaces like Noya House. And so for us, it was like, well, women have these gorgeous homes. They're working home alone, freelancers, entrepreneurs, remote workers. So why don't we just empower them to open up their homes to other women. And the cost is a lot lower. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Much lower. Yeah. A woman can um, be a part of Quilt right now for as little as $29 a month. And for that $29 a month, you get access to all of these facilitated conversations? Yeah. So it's unlimited access to the coffee and chats. So what do we kind of call them? And then the private Facebook group, which for us, we're still in very early stages, and, and the inspiration was we want to – we have had this offline community experience. We want to build technology that can facilitate uh, – continue the, to facilitate the offline experience. But we also know we're going we're gonna to want to bring these women back on. We're going to want to connect the mind of a woman who's, like, in L.A., in Kansas City, in Boston, in India, you know, thinking as we start to think globally. So what will that be? And so right now we're testing, we're just, we've put up with parameters, a private Facebook group. So any woman who is coming to the chats can continue the conversation around content and themes and the way to ask for what they need. And as we kind of garner these insights, we can implement that into Build It Tech. I'm curious about this whole notion of community building, which sounds like you've been doing for quite some time. What does it take to create a community, whether you're doing it online or off? What what are the important pieces that people need to make a community thrive? Yeah. You know, um, after kind of playing the community developer role for quite a few people before doing it for myself in this in this company, the, the number one thing I always said was the community is the person that came up with the idea for the community. Like as authentically true and honest to the core of whether it's mission-driven or whatever that passion or gift is for why somebody wants to bring people together, why a group of people come up with it, you only see a community fail when it, it gets pulled away from the core of who started it and why. And being really clear about the why, 
the hard part about a community is oftentimes we're now trying to apply different business models to it, and you see membership structures or transaction fees, or the the term is unfortunately being a little bit tainted. Mm-hmm. But at the core, you have a community, which is your values and your principles, the way in which you gather. Everybody shows up. It's associational living. Everybody shows up with a role that they play. They know what they bring. They know what they get, and they they sleep better at night because they feel the support. So what was your why? Um, My why was meeting Gianna Wurzel. (laughs) I joke that she uh, has like female empowerment in where her stomach would be, just like in her core. Um, She's, you know, part of my why, but feeling really connected to the fact that I was essentially raised from 17 to 27 living in New York City, and I didn't have a support network. I didn't have one female mentor. The women that I worked with and around, there felt like an immense amount of competition and discomfort around um, how we were all excelling. And I just felt like I was, I had to fake it, that I couldn't vulnerably open up and put words to feelings. I had to be a know-it-all. I had to go home and learn the thing the night before and come back in and pretend like I knew what I was talking about. Just still do sometimes, um, <laughs> to be fair. But it, the why was just like, loneliness is an epidemic, especially professionally. Yeah, I totally agree. And so, Gianna, I'm curious, how is it that you were born with this in your gut? That's a great question. I have moved around quite a bit. So I've lived in Italy twice. I lived in Australia for almost five years. And the second time that I'd come back from Italy, I was in my early 20s. I was probably 25. And I remember coming back and I had all of this like nervous energy, right? It's that quarter life crisis Mm -hmm. and thinking, I've just come back. Who am I? What am I doing? And I remember thinking it would be really nice if there was a space for women, like a a female-centric Craigslist that was a trusted space online where you could go and say, oh, I'm looking to play tennis with someone or practice Italian with someone. Some These women that are outside of your normative group of girlfriends, that it's very hard to kind of take that leap, especially when you're trying to grow personally and professionally because they understand you in one particular context. And so I had kind of come up with that digital idea when I was 25 years old, had no experience and um, no support at the time. And and so the the idea just kind of faded into the background. But I always knew that if someone asked me, what's the kind of leap that you would take if you were going to create something for yourself, what would it be? And I just knew that it was something in female empowerment. But there's a saying, and I think it's Australian, but it's how long is a piece of string? So it's like that could come to life in so many ways, mm-hmm. right? It could be a podcast. It could be a media company. It could be meetups. It could be anything in, in between. And so for me, it really took, you know, going on the journey that I have and meeting Ashley and starting my first business to understand that this felt like the most natural fit and very solution-oriented. Um, and I'm, I'm very interested in, in physical space, and I think that home holds a lot of weight, And so, I don't know, it's just something that's inside of me. And Ashley and I have gone through this exercise of identifying our personal purpose platform. So Mm -hmm. we've got one for Quilt for the brand, which is Unlocking Women Made. And then we've got our our personal purposes, which mine is to rebuild the feminine connection. And so Quilt is one way that I can wake up every morning and, and do that. And what's yours, Ashley? Sparking Human Potential. Love that. Mm. I love them both. Yeah. Actually, what is it about the home? What is it about inviting other people into your home, working from home? And do you think it's particularly meaningful to women? Yeah, I mean, there's this this fact that I was made aware of probably only about a year ago that that wood retains energy. 
And so if you think of it that way, it's like whatever has happened in this space, the home is is sacred. And it's a place that women have potentially traditionally been been bound to. Um, and now it's a place that we can create from. Women are the ultimate hosts, even our name, Quilt. Quilting is, yes, a creative activity, but it's really about community building amongst women. Mm-hmm. So the home, I just think, is it's just such a privilege even for us traveling throughout these different cities and in our own city in Los Angeles and and walking into a woman's home. It's a different way for her to communicate. I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been – I was telling you before we came on this this podcast that I have been going around and I've been doing these Her Money Happy Hours. And some of them have been in homes, mm-hmm. our listeners' homes, people who just say, yeah, I'll host. I'll do this. And it, it is. It's really special – having people in your environment and welcoming them and cooking for them. If that's something you're inclined to do, I I take it it's not required. But I I agree. I want to take a quick moment to remind everyone that Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Our shared mission is to get you talking about money and inspiring you to always be in the financial front seat. And that is true whether you are just entering the workforce or running a business or taking a break to raise a family or getting ready to retire. Fidelity has tools and resources that can help you understand where you stand today and help you get where you want to go. Discover more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are happy to be back with Ashley and Gianna, founders of Quilt. So, We've had a number of conversations on this show with other founders of other businesses who have gone out to raise money in order to facilitate their growth. And they've told these horrible stories. Catherine Minshew of The Muse told us her story of having to have 148 meetings. 148. She thinks it's a record. It may be before she got funding. And we heard very similar things from the founders of Rent the Runway and others. You found it easy. So, (laughs) (laughs) okay. I should take, I mean, I can only speak for myself. I love raising capital. Really? Very new to it, but I am very passionate about the experience of it. It maybe dates back to like you know, I was a was a matchmaker, and the services at the company I worked for were so exorbitant that at 21 years old, I I learned how to. Okay, we're going to have to pause on I was a matchmaker, yeah. right? <laughs> you you were a matchmaker, matchmaker. I was like a genuine, like romantic connector. I've now transitioned into being like a business connector. But yeah, my first job out of NYU was working at a matchmaking company, and the company I worked for was luxury matchmaking, and the men were charged. Twenty-five to a hundred thousand dollars for six months of dating, and I was the twenty-one-year-old sitting in front of these, you know, twenty-seven to sixty-seven-year-old men coming up with and being trained on the sales of how to convince them to spend this money. Wow, I'm just curious because I have never hired a matchmaker, and I don't know exactly how the business model works. How much did it cost women? Well, exactly. Um, so that company, nothing. So the men were clients. They would get set up once a week and, you know, women would come in and you would meet them and they would fill out a questionnaire and you would, they would be reached out to if, if the company thought of a match for them. I then had my own company where I created more of a a social experiment experience where both men and women could pay. And I designed, um, 
dining experiences where like eight and women and eight men would show up, they'd be single. I would have thought of someone for them, but not tell them who. So it was starting to create more trust around people's own ability to step into a space mm-hmm. and feel attraction, um, which I think is ultimately what led to this community space. But I, I, I craved the balance of just committing to something. And when we come back to the community conversation around business, it is paying to show up to something. So, but the matchmate, the luxury underground matchmaking space is largely run by men. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. All right. We might have to do a whole show on that. You'll <laughs> you'll hook me up with whoever's still running this company and we'll, we'll dive into that. Absolutely. Um, back to fundraising. Back to fundraising. So, yeah, it created this comfort around that. Um, and it is it is true that we had a lot of coffees. I, I haven't looked at our Excel spreadsheet to say if we beat Catherine at the 148, but we did sit with a lot of people. A lot of people said they were interested and it didn't go anywhere. You know, we ran around, we did all the all the kind of crazy things and tracked it. But we ultimately got to, um, we've now raised our pre-seed and our post-seed round um, on a note, and we kind of call our investors our constellation. They are amazing supporters, men and women, mostly angels, one um, VC structure out of SF, um, and they have shown up they have shown up for us. They've offered like strategic advisement. They're just, they've been there for us. So the journey was long to get to them, but we have been very, we are very grateful. Yeah. And the litmus test for us was, and after having a couple of, there are always horror stories, I think, uh, in any, in any capital raising journey. But for us, it was, do we want to sit at at a dinner table with whoever comes on board, not because we have to, and we have to kind of tap dance and and play that role, but because we genuinely enjoy their company, because this is something that we're all, the intention is that we're on this journey together for a very, very long time. And so, yeah, we were just very, very fortunate. So you have been in L.A. for how long now? So I've been I've been back in L.A. from Australia for three years. And the business has been in L.A.? Yeah, so the business, we finished raising our our first round last April. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've both been in L.A. community building for the past three years. And you're launching in New York. Mm-hmm. So where does it go from here? What, when can, Everywhere. I mean, I, <laughs> well, no, you say that, but I hear you say you moved around a lot, right? I've been raised, I was raised in Wisconsin, Indiana, Michigan, West Virginia, Illinois, and I went to college in Pennsylvania before moving to New York. And so I I immediately hear everywhere, and I'm thinking, all right, when is it coming to the middle of the country? We want to go to all the places you just mentioned and beyond. So for us, it's it's a, an interesting revelation for us, transparently, that's, that's happened fairly recently over the past couple of weeks, where we've been looking at uh, the the cities that we would want to go to next, whereas... Really, there's been so much inquiry from all over the country and all over the world of women who have emailed us the most beautiful emails saying, I love this. I'm ready. When can I open? And our response to them has been, hold just a moment. We're operationally getting sorted to ensure that we can support you for a very long time. And it's not this flash in the pan kind of idea, but it's really leading by the woman first, not the city first. So, for example, Chicago... Kansas, Nashville, there have been these like hubs of women who have just been emailing us and those would probably be our the, the next bet before we'd go to Miami or some of the more obvious kind of coastal cities next. You talked about the coffee 
conversation, coffee and conversation. Mm. How does that work? And what are people what are people saying as you gather them? Yeah, so um, a coffee and chat. Coffee is, and chat. And Sorry. It, no, it's great. And now it can be tea and chat, maybe some wine and chat, maybe kombucha if you're in L.A. living in Venice and chat. Um, <laughs> it happens. Or if you're Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> we all love kombucha. Um, and so it is an, it's a very specific hour-long like facilitation. So they come in. They have that kind of shared experience of the beverage. They sit in a circle, and all of the hosts go through – kind of a, a mini training program, which is we have a theme of each month. The month we're wrapping in February has all been about commitment. So that theme for the month guides the conversations. But uh, every time you show up to a woman's home, she's going to make it unique because she kicks off by sharing a vulnerable story for her. She reads a question that evokes a response. She just starts off by sharing it and then moves into what I like to call like the stages of vulnerability. So you have like step one and it's just everyone kind of saying a word that describes a feeling that they're having all the way into getting like really pretty deep. And there's the guidelines that's like you don't have to say something. A lot of the women that show up sometimes get so much more just by by being there and listening. Um, And it really is your own ego if you believe everybody needs to talk in a talk circle. I learned that kind of not the hard way, but interestingly. Um, And so, you know, you'll have the different personalities. It's no more, it's eight women. Um, That's kind of our sweet spot. Um, Mm -hmm. And it creates a comfortable environment for everyone to feel open enough to, to chat, basically. So it is, we have a specific structure that exists. Do you hear women talking about money? Yeah, uh, because this is, it's fair to say, professionally focused. So the women that that do attend or that are drawn to quilts and to coffee and chat as a a product uh, do have professional careers, whether they're going to an advertising agency or they're working from home. It doesn't really matter, but they are very passionate about what they do. And so, yes, money, which is going to be our theme in April, definitely comes up. And it's, it is a, an, an uncomfortable conversation to have. But I think the nature of our, our formula, which is the home, eight to 10 women, and then a conversation around something meaningful creates that environment where women can talk about anything and everything. And, and money definitely tends to be one of the topics. And do you find women coming out of these talk circles with solutions, with a feeling of empowerment? What's the end goal or or the end product? Yeah, there's definitely connection, not just the, oh, I've now met you and you're in my email inbox, but genuinely feeling connected. Um, I think, and this may be just personal experience, but the conversation around comparison, around women not feeling like other women are going through the same things that they're going through. You just create a space and you all realize that you all don't know what you don't know. You have the same questions, you know, answers to everyone has now has the exact same accountant. Her name is Paco. She does ours. <laughs> she is rad. She's everyone's accountant now. Like, right? So it's this trusted environment. It's like, yes, you feel connected and supported. Yeah. The concept of like, you know, together we can rise. It's not the lone wolf mentality of separately going out and trying to compete. It's living in this place of abundance that like I can be successful, you can be success, everybody can be successful. Um, and more so when you feel supported. So that's probably the the most important thing. But then the genuine connections of saying like, I don't know, taxes are coming up. What do I do? And feeling comfortable and saying, like, I have no idea. Like, I have no idea what that means. It's such an important lesson. I I mean, it took me 
a lot of years on television before I was not no longer afraid to say, you know, I don't know the answer to that. And it is the best feeling in the world to be able to say, I don't know, and realize it's okay. Yeah. And someone else does. And yeah. I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> that becomes a collective sigh of relief, right? When you're in a home and someone's like finally feeling comfortable enough to literally say, I don't know the difference between a W-2 and a W-9 or an S-corp and a C-corp. And these, yeah. are ge- these are things that people, that women are genuinely interested in and knowledge that we want to have, but there just aren't the environments where you feel comfortable enough to, to say. And so, yeah, it's that collective sigh of relief, like, huh, I'm not the only one. Hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's empowering. And it, and it makes you feel just better about going on with your life because you realize those are not roadblocks to getting where you want to go. The information's out there. You just have to be willing to put yourself out there and ask for it. Yep. It's fantastic. I love the whole idea. I wanted to ask specifically about asks and tasks, which I know are part of these conversations. So how does that work? Yeah. So when when the women go on to our group right now and say, like, I'm co-working from home come. So the talk circles are very much around new women coming together. When they become comfortable, they create these cohorts and women now are sitting silently side by side working. I don't need to, like, go ask you your name or be distracted by that. I can kind of head down and focus. Women are craving even more productivity, conversation around batch days or how they program you know, the day that they, they're having. So when they come, um, usually they stick around for about four hours. That's that sweet spot we've learned. Mm-hmm. And that first hour, Coffee and Chat was born out of what was the first hour of co-working because we're trying to get everyone to know each other so that they could f- not have the anxiety of networking while working and replaced it with ask and tasks. So you can have your ask that you can say out loud. Everybody hears it. They can connect during the three hours and say, I heard that you're, you know, looking for PR support. That's actually my background, you know, and just genuinely supporting one another. And then everyone comes up with a task. They write it down on a Post-it note. They put it on the wall. They verbally say it outside to kind of have the accountability and commitment to it. And everyone says, like, okay, cool. And you sit down, you get it done. And when if you get it done in the next three hours, getting your inbox to zero, finishing a proposal, you go put the next one up. So a lot of these women have said that instead of going to a coffee shop or being at home where they kind of got distracted or for me end up making like an extravagant lunch that you didn't like need to spend an or hour and laundry. a half on <laughs> yeah. or doing laundry. <laughs> or, or cleaning a closet. Right. You're like, right. what am I doing right now? <laughs> Any of the things they say like, I pick this four-hour chunk, I show up, I'm held accountable, and other, and I'm also inspired to see other women that are, you know, getting stuff done. Um, so that is the ask and task of co-working. Well, and I think we can learn something from that and use that even if we don't have a quilt in our neighborhood. True. Yeah. We're coming towards you soon. Post-it notes. Okay. Until <laughs> you get there. Until we get there, Just until though, you course. get yeah. there. Absolutely. Well, this has been fun. And congratulations Thank on you. coming to New York and lots of luck with all of this. We can't wait to hear more about where you're going. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much for having, having us. us. Sure. <laughs> that was great. And Kelly is with me now in the studio. Hey, Kel. Hello. That was really fun. Well, I have massive girl crushes on them now. <laughs> I think I told them I was excited seven times about being on the Quilt Network in New York City. So I hope I didn't come off too strong. I'm sure. I'm sure not. <laughs> I'm sure not. So we promised a recap of yesterday. Yeah, myself, Hayden, and Hattie all worked from the rooftop yesterday for a few hours, and it was gorgeous out. I know. 
I know. Such it a was treat. I was so envious because I was in Houston, although I was with a fabulous organization in Houston. There's a network across the country of these groups called WISE, which stands for Women in Sports and Events. Oh. Yeah. Cool. I know. And it's I was in Houston with a, a club that's been in existence for two years now, but the organization in and of itself is 25 years old. And you can imagine why women felt like they needed to start this because they're women who work for the sports teams and the arenas and the big events productions companies, which are a little more female than the teams themselves. But what a wonderful group. I mean, really energetic and wanting to help each other. And I was reminded of their conversation with the asks and the tasks, Mm -hmm. because that's what they're sort of there for. They're a networking organization, and they're there to help other women come along in their careers. And yet the woman who brought it to Houston said to me that they do tell people, if you walk into this room and ask somebody to hire you, we will ask you to leave. If you do that on the first, if you do that on the first take, like that's not what it's for. And I, I think that is something that people get confused on when it comes to networking. Yes. You know, networking is as much giving as it is getting, and you got to give before you get. Yep, absolutely. And I think through reporting on networking, when I first started reporting for you, that was a big takeaway for me. It's what can you do for the other person Mm -hmm. that you eventually hope will help you? You have to lead with giving or helping them in order to be helped. And kind of also with with the quilt conversation in mind, you have to be a friend to have friends. Yep. I kind of was thinking of that too because I also think this is a brilliant way to meet like-minded women in a city if you're new to the city or yeah. even if you're just looking to mix up your personal network. Well, I think I've told you this. So I, when I first moved to my house in Westchester, I made my like-minded friends on the train because oh, yes. they were the other women like me who were commuting. Mm -hmm. And it was a town where I would think, although I don't have actual numbers on this, two-thirds of the women did not work outside the home. Mm -hmm. And so that was where I found my group. And and they're my friends to this day, even though I'm not on the train as much anymore because I do work from home. But Loneliness was a really big problem for me when I stopped going into the city in part because I didn't get to have those conversations every day. And something like this would fill a really big hole. Huge. And even just the energy of being around people. Like you don't have to talk all the time. No. For for the introverts who are listening who prefer to work kind of in solitude, like – socially, but you can even just, it feels more productive to me to work around someone, even if I'm not talking to the person all day, which is what happens sometimes on our team. Yeah. Well, and you guys will come up to my house sometimes and we'll all just work from there. And I love those days. Me too. And you get to eat the peanut butter in my refrigerator. I sure do. And your yogurts and anything else, really. (laughs) You're so generous. You're a generous host. I was not not going for the generous. I was going for the peanut butter. Kelly goes for more peanut butter. (laughs) 
Just saying. It's kind of gross. No, it's, it's okay. You're the only person I've ever seen who puts peanut butter in yogurt. Oh, man. <laughs> and Charles is now looking at us like, ladies, uh, move it along. Move it on. Okay, questions. Our first question from Lauren, who is a 21-year-old junior in college. She's wondering if she should apply for a credit card. And if not now, when is the ideal time? She currently uses her debit card for transactions, but says she knows this isn't super smart, as it's linked to her student savings account with no overdraft fees. She writes, I have over $5,000 in savings and worry about the easy access if my card or account info gets lost or stolen. My parents aren't too keen on the idea of me opening a credit card as I, quote, don't need it for anything now and don't need to worry about a credit score yet. End quote. Should I still try to apply for security reasons? And if so, what kind of cards should I be looking at? Okay, a couple of misconceptions in her question. The idea that you don't have to worry about a credit score yet is not exactly right. So you're going to get out of college. You're going to apply for a job where somebody might check your credit. Not your score, because employers can't look at the score, but they can look at history. You're going to apply for an apartment to rent where your landlord may ask for a credit report. You're going to apply for a car loan, maybe, if you need a car to get yourself back and forth to work. And what a lot of people don't understand about credit is that it's a history. It's a history that needs to be built upon. And if you get out of college and you don't have a credit history at all, you'll have what's called a thin file, and then you won't be able to qualify for anything. So I'm not opposed to you applying for a card right now. You may or may not get one. You either, according to the Card Act, have to be 21 or have the income to support it. But the fact that you've got $5,000 in savings makes me think you may have income to support it. And see what happens. If you get turned down, which you might, apply for a secured credit card or ask your parents to add you to one of their cards as an authorized user. Um, Not all cards will report on behalf of authorized users to the credit bureaus. We know American Express does. That's what I did for my kids. But your parents can simply call the card company and ask about adding you and whether they'll report. If they don't report on your behalf, it does no good. So you just don't want to go down that road. And then I'd suggest that if you're not quite comfortable with having a card that you use on a regular basis, put one bill on that card that you know you're going to have to pay automatically every single month, like the cell phone, or if you're on your parents' plan, maybe you've got cable in your name, or maybe the gym membership. Just pay it automatically, and then don't use the card. And that way, you're building a nice, regular credit history. You'll be able to use it when you get out of school, and and everything will be just fine. Lauren, the only reason I was able to successfully get a credit card right after I graduated college is because my parents or my mom added me as an authorized user to hers. Yeah, and just tell your mom. if A lot of parents think, whoa, this is a road I don't want to go down because I don't want my kid charging up my credit card bill. Credit card companies will set separate limits for the child with the card, and those limits can be artificially low. 
Good luck with that, though. Yes, good luck. Next one from Marie. She writes, with so much information, it's hard to know which way is appropriate for my situation. I'm currently following the Ramsey program, paying off debt. But in the back of my mind, I'm wondering, should I take some of that money and invest it to grow my wealth and pay off debt that way? Or do I continue taking the slow path to chip it away? Well, I wish Marie, and first of all, let me just say, we are fans of Dave Ramsey. Huge. And we are fans of Rachel. And mm-hmm. we, we just, we're good friends with Dave. And we're, I, I'm a believer in his program and his mentality that getting rid of debt is a really, really good thing to do. But I also understand what you're saying here. And when the interest rates on your debts are low, it is possible that you would be doing better by investing some of your money. And in particular, if you've got the ability to put some money into a retirement account that your employer is matching, you are leaving a huge amount of money on the table by not going forward with that. So I would say, in general, look at your interest rates. Look at how much money you're able to throw against this problem of getting out of debt. Try to lower the interest rates. There are still a lot of balance transfer offers out there, which may allow you to reduce the interest rates to zero for 12 to 18 months, which could allow you to get out of this debt faster. And then look at how much you're leaving on the table by not investing for your future. Not every year is going to be a year in the market like we had in 2017, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't go forward. Dividing and conquering, taking half your money and using it toward debt repayment, taking the other half and investing it for your future is not a bad solution. Great. And we'll do one more from Susan. We are moving my mother-in-law into an assisted living. They are asking for 3200 monthly. In addition, 500 to administer medication, 500 to help her with oxygen, 107 to be sure she's dressed, 107 to be sure she makes it to the dining room daily, all monthly add-ons. Are these fees negotiable? They may be. You know, I have not seen it broken out like this before, Me which neither. doesn't mean that it doesn't happen all the time. I would shop assisted living communities. Well, you should have. I don't know where you're writing from. I don't know what the choices are. I am sure that you surveyed the landscape of assisted living facilities before you decided where your mother-in-law was going to go. You should know that the annual average cost of assisted living all in is $45,000 a year, according to Genworth. So these charges are not so far out of range. Mm. Um, And it may just be that you're seeing them in a more broken out way than we usually see them. I would say everything is negotiable. Or if you don't ask, the answer is always no. So so you may want to ask. You may want to tee up a conversation recognizing that these are the people who are going to be caring for this older woman who you love and you want to have a good relationship with them going forward. Um, beyond that, I, I don't have too many more details about how to how to go about it. I would say that if this is a cost that you are bearing on your own and there are siblings around who could help you, even if you guys are the closest providers of care, this should be the sort of problem that the whole family rallies around. Great. Thank you, Jean. 
Thank you, Kelly. And in our Thrive segment today, tax season is underway, and so are the scams, I'm afraid. So we've reported in years past about a scam where people go out and they apply for your tax refund ahead of the time that you've applied for it. They're basically posing as you, and they set up a mailbox or an address where they can actually receive the refund and deposit the refund check. What's different this year is that they are having the refund direct deposited into your bank account and then posing as an IRS agent saying that it's there by accident and you should give it back to them. You should return your refund money. But unbeknownst to you, you're not returning it to the IRS, you're returning it to a scammer, which we don't want to happen. If this happens to you, immediately alert your bank, meaning if you get refund money that you weren't anticipating because you didn't apply for it, immediately alert your bank, shut down that account. If you get a paper check that you didn't expect, write void on it and return it to the IRS Regional Service Center that the check came from. And if by happenstance you already went ahead and cashed a check like this, you can rectify the situation by sending a personal check with a note to the IRS Service Center saying, this is repayment for an erroneous refund. We were victims of a scam. And if you do receive any IRS scam calls, report them. You want to report them to the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration. You can find them online at TIGTA.gov. A huge thank you for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Ashley and Gianna for a terrific conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week when we'll be back with another great guest.